Hi friends, this is Pastor Brad. Thanks so much for joining us for this special edition of our podcast. This is a recording of our Bible study coming soon. For this study, we're going to be looking at at gaining a better understanding of end times prophecy and what the Bible says about the second coming of Jesus. It's a very prevalent topic right now, and we hope that these sessions will help you as you navigate this challenging topic. The sessions will be coming out every two weeks, so keep checking back for the next one. We hope you enjoy your listening. Please reach out if you have any questions or comments. God bless you. Tonight, what we're going to talk about in, a, in sort of a big, grand way is th- that we as believers don't really know how all of this is going to unfold. Even in terms of ideas like the second coming, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and all of that, that that we can hold and see as like, oh, the Bible clearly says, whatever we think the Bible clearly says, and we've talked about this lots as we moved through Mark 13, but everything we think the Bible clearly says, there's somebody else who says it says something different. And so as we unpack all of this, um, what we're going to discover is that there's really six different ways that Christians, both historically and in our modern times, do this. That, that not, these are not just views that were held by people a thousand years ago, but modern day scholarly Christian thinkers will hold to these different views. Well, I would say at least five of the six views. I think the sixth view is heretical. Um, so I don't know that you could be a Christian thinker, but they would say that they're a Christian thinker and hold this. So it depends on how, how you do that. Or how you understand that. Now, just a little disclaimer. Um, this is going to be a little in the weeds in terms of Christian terms and terminology. Um, lots of, of Bible college sounding words and, and big words and, and all kinds of, of, of things to make this sound like a very high level discussion. I'll try to, to minimize them as much as I can, um, or at least define as much as I can. So if at any point I, I just lose you or you don't get it, just let me know and, and we'll stop and <laughs> go back to try, to try and get back to, to where we needed to be. Because there's going to be lots of terms and lots of words and, and all kinds of things. Um, now, in general, these views, as what we're going to talk about tonight, especially related to the six views, is that how they interpret the second coming of Jesus and the relationship that Jesus coming has with what is described in Revelation as a thousand year reign. In, in Revelation, we'll talk about Jesus having this thousand year reign and the thousand year reign being connected to his second coming. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about whether or not what this comes down to, I guess, is whether or not the millennial reign of Jesus is a past thing, a present thing, or a future thing, and based on where we are right now in the timeline of human history. And, and with that, when does Jesus return? Does he come before that millennium or does he come after that millennium? The term for all of this that, that we've been talking about, and I think I talked about this, but I wasn't sure. But I thought if I hadn't said anything about this, I needed to. But the term for all of this is eschatology, is that's the name of this type of theology, this understanding of end times is called eschatology. And so we've spent five weeks sort of looking at and defining eschatology. That's the big Christian word for that. And there's really sort of three schools uh, of of eschatology, but two of them splinter, and, and that's what, or th- all three of them, I guess, sort of splinter, and that's what, well, 
two of them splinter, one splinters three ways, one splinters two. And that's what gives us the six views. It depends, really it comes down to a pre-millennial view, a post-millennial view, or an amillennial view. And we'll talk about what that means. And this is the main thrust of what we're going to explore tonight. Um, and like I said, there's six different views on the subject, six different ways of understanding what the Bible says. five of which I think have a good foundation to stand on. Um, I don't necessarily subscribe to all five of them, but I think there's five of them that you could point to and scripturally defend to say this makes sense. One of which most people would say is not good, probably heresy, but they, the people who subscribe to this wouldn't call it that, but I think it's important that we highlight it anyway. But for the five that I think have a valid foot to stand on, um, there's, a, there's a few things that all five have in common. First, uh, uh, Jesus having a future bodily return, that the physical Jesus is coming back. Second, that there's really an eternal kingdom on its way. Third, that there is an actual bodily resurrection for believers. Fourth, that we're going to live in an eternal kingdom with God forever. And five, that there is a glorious, perfect eternity coming. And so the five that are non-heretical um, will have those five things in common. The other one, not so much. But so if we jump into the first view, the first view that we're going to talk about tonight is post-millennialism. And in a general sense, post uh, the post-millennial view, as you may be able to put together from the name, is that the thing Jesus coming back will be after the millennium the post-millennium. Jesus will be returning at the end of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus. Now, something that has to be understood right away for, for a post-millennial view to have any sort of sense to stand on is that the thousand-year reign of Jesus is not a literal thousand years. It's just a stand-in number for a long time. So when the Bible talks about Jesus will reign for a thousand years, that was not necessarily a prescriptive, descriptive 1,000 years, and we're going to have like the, the ability to count it down. But it, it's, it was more of John just, you know, the Holy, or the Holy Spirit inspiring John with just a big number. Um, sort of like when, when Jesus said we need to forgive someone 70 times seven times, um, it wasn't a math problem. It wasn't like, okay, so 490, okay, I got 490 times, 491st time, I don't have to forgive anymore. That Jesus was saying an innumerable number of times you need to forgive someone. And so John saying that it's a, a, a thousand year reign isn't specifically actually 1,000 years, but it's a stand-in that just means Jesus is going to have a very long reign. It's not a countdown, but rather just a symbolic number. And so what that looks like is that Jesus is reigning from heaven right now for this millennium, for this period. And at the end of this millennium that Jesus is reigning in, that, that from when he ascended up into heaven um, till whenever he comes back, this is the millennial reign of Jesus. And during that span, or at the end of that span, he will return to his earthly body. And so then all of the stuff that we would associate with end times, the rapture, when we're caught up with Jesus and transformed, that will all happen in the second coming. All resurrections and judgments all happen right then when Jesus comes back. And this is when Jesus' eternal kingdom begins right here. 
And so a post-millennial person would believe that the tribulation period, which we've talked about this term, it refers to the seven-year period of great persecution. For a post-millennial, this event has already happened. The tribulation has already taken place. It happened a long time ago, actually. Um, essentially, the end of the, the tribulation, the result of the end of the tribulation was the destruction of the temple in AD 70 that that was when the end of the tribulation ended. And essentially that, you know, for an actual post-millennial, I guess when I said Jesus ascended into heaven, it's not entirely accurate. They would say that the millennium, the millennium reign of Jesus started with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Now, this is a date that's going to come up a lot during our look at this because there was a significant event that took place in the in 70, the destruction of the temple. And even Jesus talked about the destruction of the temple when it came to future prophecy. Um, in fact, in Mark 13 that we were walking through, um, that we spent our time looking at, it begins with Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple that we would see in AD 70. And so for a post-millennial, the descriptions of a tribulation that was coming was a prophecy about everything that happened in Jerusalem and Israel leading up to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So that, you know, when, you, when we go back and if we think in our minds, well, what do we remember Jesus saying? Things like, if you're in Judea, run to the hills. That makes a lot of sense if you understand AD 70 as this significant moment when the Romans came and they destroyed the temple and Jerusalem was under siege and, and you know, all of those kinds of things. And so the reign of Jesus starts at this point. And so for a post-millennial, this thousand-year reign is really a picture of the church going into the world with the gospel, that that's what the reign of Jesus looks like. And, and more than that, it's almost a political idea of this Christian kingdom expanding and expanding and growing in influence and prominence in the world. So whereas sometimes the idea that we can be most familiar with this is, is, when we talk about, you know, a one world government and these kinds of things, and we can see it as the shadowy, scary thing, a post-millennial is almost looking forward to that because they believe that the promises of a one world Christian government, essentially, that as the Christian kingdom expands around the world, that that's what that will look like. Um, one of the one of the things that we'll talk about with kind of each of these looks um, is that they believe that Satan is already bound in Revelation. I'll talk about the binding of Satan. And they believe that that this took place when Jesus came. And when he talks about the strong man being bound, that this has already happened. And so the binding of Satan that we read about in Revelation is already happening. And it happened a long time ago. And so how does that work? What does that mean that Satan is already bound? And what they would point to is that before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God's work was primarily inside of the Jewish people. But in the death, resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel is now set free to go to all the nations of the world. And while there still may be people who don't believe the knowledge and availability to the gospel or while there may be people who don't believe the knowledge and availability of the gospel is growing and becoming more and more accessible to everyone. So the binding of Satan isn't that he's totally bound. It's not that he's, he's completely impotent, not that he doesn't have any power or influence, but it's that the part of the world that was left out of the old covenant that he had sort of a monopoly on has ended. And the gospel goes out to everyone under this new covenant. Now, 
one of the things to understand a post-millennial view is that we need to understand how they look at the book of Revelation. That they can't just say, well, that book doesn't exist, or we don't believe that that's canon, or whatever. That they believe that it's the Bible. And we're going to talk about this actually for, for each of the, the views that we're going to look at, because the way that they understand and the way that we understand the book of Revelation really informs or really allows us to flush out our way that we understand the second coming of Jesus, obviously. Um, you have to. Um, and so for the post-millennial view, the term for someone who views the book of Revelation the way they do is called a preterist. That, that's the, the specific. So post-millennial, it would be their esch eschatological, their view of eschatology um, would be that they're a post-millennial. And then the way that they would, the, the, the system of understanding um, revelation that they would have is preterist would be the name of it. And what that means is that they would say that most of the book of Revelation was fulfilled in AD 70. And that the point of the book of Revelation, when we start to deal with future prophecies that won't have to come. So they believe that the vast majority of Revelation happened in AD 70. But there is a point where it transitions into future prophecy. And that point is in Revelation chapter 20, between Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, and Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. That that, that point, we move from things that have happened to things that will happen. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6 says this. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So, and remember a thousand years just to stand in for a really long time. So not a literal thousand years, they will reign with him for a very long time. And so everything in revelation up until this point has already taken place. This is where we are right now. We are living in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. And all of the prophecies that you read about in Revelation, everything that you read about in the book of Revelation has already happened. It all was fulfilled in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. Then we transition to verse 7. And this is where now we jump into the future. Because verse 7 begins with, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. So we're going to reign for a thousand years for this very long time. And then when this very long time is ended, so we're not there yet, but when it's ended, this will be what takes place. So in a long, so whenever this long span of reign of Jesus and his, his followers is over, then these things will begin to happen. Now, if you're coming into this view with the more, perhaps traditional view of premillennialism that you may hold to. This probably can sound fairly crazy and out there, um, but there's actually very prominent Christian thinkers today um, who hold to this view. You may be familiar with N.T. Wright. Um, he's, a, he's a New Testament scholar, one of the leading New Testament scholars in the world, in Greek and New Testament, and he holds to this view. It's actually, in some ways... With, with sort of, um, you may have heard the term like young, restless, reformed um, as, as a description of, of sort of a rising reformed theology. And this is actually somewhat of a popular view among some of those circles. Um, but what we need to see is the way that they see the Bible is essential to understanding how they get there. 
They take the stance that the prophecies of the book of Revelation are not general to the world as a whole. And so when they read through the book of Revelation, you might think, well, there's so many things in Revelation that talk about the whole world. But they don't, when they, when they read the book of Revelation and they see the whole world, they make the assumption that it's speaking not about the whole world, but that it's speaking about all of Israel. That as, Rev, that as the book of Revelation unfolds, we're, we're not, and it, we're getting these insights into, you know, one third of the population of the world. Well, it doesn't mean the world per se, it means Israel per se. When you see judgments on the nations of the world, what we're actually seeing is judgments on the tribes of Israel. When you see that things that look global in the first 20 chapters of Revelation, it's actually with Israel. And when you look at the book of Revelation through this very specific lens, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 being this cataclysmic event actually makes a whole lot of sense. The second force their understanding of the book of revelation is that they would say that their view of revelation as the ter the term they would use is apocalyptic literature now that's a word that when we when i say apocalyptic we get this picture of like the end of the world that the apocalypse is the end of the world and so when we say well they view revelation as apocalyptic literature we would say yeah it's the end of the world but apocalyptic literature, when you use it in a liter literary sense, um, doesn't actually mean the end of the world kind of apocalypse. It's kind of ironic because we use a term like apocalyptic literature not to describe ap the apocalypse, but to describe poetic hyperbole. So we use a hy hyperbolic word to describe poetic hyperbole. And we do have parts of the Bible that are specifically they're hyperbole, they're poetic hyperbole. David will say in Psalms that he makes his bed swim with all of his tears. Obviously not literal, it's hyperbole, it's, it's symbolic. And they, they would say that revelation is like that, elevated language to make a point, but not meant to be taken as a one-to-one -one picture. When it says the whole world, it means the whole world. It's when it says the whole world, it's John's whole world. It's first century Jewish person's whole world. It's Israel. God is destroying the temple now because he is in the church and God is punishing Israel for rejecting the Messiah. And the third way that they would look at the book of Revelation is that it's not linear, but rather layers. And so like in Revelation 6 through 18, you see these judgments that happen in the form of seals, trumpets, and bulls. Um, and they would say these are not linear events, that it's not one, then two, then three. But they would say that one, like, or it's not one happening after the other, but they would say that rather it's all the same thing. It's just viewed differently each time in different apocalyptic language. And so when you use these three lenses to look at the book of Revelation, it's hard actually not to find fulfillment in 70 AD. And so for an example of how all of this works, where we can look at a passage like in Revelation chapter 19, and this, they will say this passage, well, we would say this passage is talking about the coming of Jesus when it will say, uh, is this right? Yeah, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, one sitting on it is called faithful and true and, right, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns and he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. 
He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. Clearly, this passage we would understand to talk about Jesus and his coming. And as a premillennialist, if that's you, you would say that this is the second coming of Jesus. But postmillennialist, this event's already taken place. This was apocalyptic hyperbole of God's judgment on Israel and the destruction of the temple. That what this is talking about is not the second coming of Jesus, but this is a grand, poetic, hyperbolic. Um, picture of what took place in 87 when God destroyed the temple. Another example of how this would verse that as a premillennialist, we may say, clearly this one hasn't happened. Revelation chapter 6, verse 14 says that the sky like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Doesn't seem like that's happened yet. And we can look and we can see, there's mountains, they're still there. But a post-millennialist would say, don't understand on a global scale, that's not what God's talking about. He's not talking about the Rocky Mountains. Instead, what he's referring to is the Roman workers who were leveling roads for horsemen to travel unhindered to attack Jerusalem. So as the Romans were invading, they were raising up valleys, they were lowering mountains so that they could build their roads. And so that's how they would, they would interpret so many of these things that we would look and go, how on earth can you say that? And they, well, here's how we unpack over and over again. As you move through the book of revelation, you, you would say, surely they have no equivalent. They do. And they find all the fulfillments in the first 20 chapters of revelation in the events surrounding the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Some, very strong. Some you go, wow, that's really good. And some are pretty tenuous where you would go stretching this. They do have an answer for every one of them. Now, obviously, there's some criticisms of postmodernism. Did they stretch symbolism almost to its break? The further you read into the book and the more events you find, and the more they have to go back and find something from the temple destruction, the more events begin to be like, I don't know about that one. That is, they, they look and they, because they have to make everything fit. And so they look and they try and find whatever detail they can to draw these things out. Um, it also appears to change and minimize the focus on Revelation. Making it simply about Israel makes it much have, have a much smaller significance. And if you were to just read this book, um, you wouldn't necessarily come away with the idea that it's simply about Israel. A plain reading of the text wouldn't necessarily give you this understanding. Um, it also seems to have two second comings of Jesus um, in AD 70 and then again in the future. And the last thing that's kind of difficult to reconcile is the date that the book of Revelation was written. See, most people would put the time frame when the book of Revelation was written as somewhere between 60 and 90 AD. And for all of these events to be future events, you leave yourself with a very small window for that to be true. A window for these events to be predictive. That if it was written in AD 80 or AD 90, these events are no longer predictive if they're just talking about the destruction of the temple because that's already happened. So there are some, some concerns about a post-millennial view. And let's go on to our second view. 
And the reason that is, the, or the reason that we're going to do this one second is because it's related to the last one. But, and this is a big but, this is the one that I believe is heretical. This is the one that I believe is fully unbiblical. And what it's called, they would call themselves post-millennial as, as well, where it is different is in their view of revelation. So we talked about how a typical post-millennial would be a preterist. Well, this view is called full or hyper-preterist or full or hyper-preterism. A hyper-preterist would take what the post-millennial would say of everything up until Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, that all of that has already happened, and they would extend that all the way to the end of the book. Um, they would ex also extend it to everything contained in the Bible. Everything in the Bible has already been fulfilled. Jesus has already come back, and we are living in a post-second covenant world. The eternal kingdom is already happening. And this, this obviously turns into a, a denial of some of the central tenets of Christianity. There, there is no more literal resurrection. None. No future resurrection. There is no actually eternal life. We are living it right now. There is no end to death or pain. Jesus has already returned from the last time. And so by saying all of these things have been fulfilled, we in a sense are denying their fulfillment because clearly the things that the Bible says will be are not with what the world looks like today. They, like a lot of post-millennialists, would point to AD 70 as the time that this was fulfilled, but they say all of it was fulfilled in AD 70. And that somehow all of the early church just missed it. That as the church grew past AD 70, all the way up until today, we are living in a post-second coming of Jesus world. And so where, what that means for us, they're not really sure about that. If we die, where are we? Is there grace and, and all of that for us? Because Jesus has already come back a second time. Obviously there's a lot wrong with this view. And if you hold this view, um, I would encourage you or strongly ask you to consider rethinking it. Um, that this, this is not, I think a biblically supportable view. View number three. So not all of these are going to take as long as we did on the first one. But view, view number three, premillennialism. The synopsis of the premillennial premillennialist view is this. They view the second coming of Jesus as yet to happen, still to come. And when he comes the second time, he's going to establish a literal thousand-year kingdom reign. At the beginning of the reign, there would be the resurrection of the saints. And then at the end of the thousand-year reign, there would be a resurrection of everyone else to face their judgment. Before the thousand-year reign, they believe there is a tribulation coming. Most would say this is a literal seven-year period, a seven-year period of crazy persecution and trials for Christians right before that millennium begins. And so this is a great source of tension and speculation for premillennialists. Are we entering the tribulation? We look at the world around us for the signs that we believe to point to. Is that a one-world government? Is that the beast? Is that the mark of the beast? And this is because a premillennialist believes the next major thing on the time scale would be the seven-year period that we would be looking for that to be the next thing. And so they look for markers to show we're getting there. We've talked about this with what Jesus had to be able to say about the one sign that he gave for us being the abomination of desolation and its seeming connection to this seven-year period. A premillennialism or premillennialist views the binding of Satan as very literal. 
He has bound, he has no influence and no effect on the world or people during this time. Now, you may identify as a premillennialist in your understanding of eschatology, but if you do, I would say to you, which kind? Which one are you? Because there are actually a couple of different camps inside of premillennialism. There is what is known as a dispensational premillennialist, and there's another view called progressive dispensational premillennialism. And we'll talk about both of those tonight. There's a distinction, and, and we'll talk about that. And, but first, we'll talk about what these two views have in common. We'll start with what they have, and then we'll allow it to branch off. Uh, both of these views have a very literal understanding of the book of Revelation. Not to say that they believe everything in there to be literal, that there is an understanding that some things are figurative, but when we read the language, we need to understand it that way, that, that even if it's being, or being figurative, it's being literal in its figurativeness. In the symbolism, the symbolism needs to be taken very straightforward. Another thing that they have in common is that they would both view Israel and the church as two different things. There's prophecies about Israel for the future that will not be looked to be fulfilled in the church and the other way around as well. So let's talk about these two things. Let's start with dispensational premillennialism, or what would be known as the futurist. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. What does dispensational mean? That's a very big sounding word. This is probably a word that we need to unpack for you. I needed to unpack it for me. Um, it's a concept referring to the word when it talks about dispensational. It's a concept referring to how God structured human history, that throughout history, God has structured human history in what we would call dispensations, different periods of time where God's relationship to humanity looked a certain way. Um, like this, in the Garden of Eden, it was the era of innocence. That was a dispensation that while we were in the Garden of Eden, we had a very specific, when Adam and Eve, I guess not we, but humanity, Adam and Eve were in the garden. They had a very specific relationship to God that looked a very specific way. After the, after the fall became the next dispensation because our relationship to God changed. And, and people would call it the, the dispensation or the era of conscience. Man doesn't, we didn't have the law. We didn't have any commands from God for how to live. We, did, we didn't have anything from God that say thou shalt or thou shalt not. But instead, we were just forced to, to, to follow our own conscience. This extended until the flood. After the flood, we would have what we would call the dispensation or the era of civil government, which, ascend, which extended until Abram, after which we have the dispensation of the promise, which extends until Moses, when we have the dispensation of the law, which extended all the way until Jesus. And then after Jesus we have the dispensation or the era of the church. And this will extend all the way till the second coming of Jesus. So as you can sort of see, the, the dispensations were getting progressively longer and longer and longer. But each one sort of represents a, a time when God's relationship and how his relationship with people shifted and changed. That when we got the law, suddenly our relationship to God looked different. And it looked that way right up until Jesus came. And then he established this new covenant. And now we have the church and our relationship with God looks one way now. But when Jesus comes back, it's going to look different again. And so in time, in the time we are right now, we're, we're in what the dispensation or the era of the church. 
but there's still specific prophecies that need to be fulfilled in the nation of Israel as well. And so we'll, we'll talk about how, the, how a dispensational premillennialist would view the book of Revelation. On a base level, they would see it all as future. And that's where futurist comes in. So the, the, there's the, the, excuse me, the post-millennial and the, the, would be a preterist. And then a premillennial would be a futurist. So unlike the preterist view where most of Revelation has happened, we're all just waiting for the ending, a dispensational premillennialist would say pretty much none of it has happened. That once you get past the first three chapters, it's all still to come. Um, and when it happens, we, have a, we will have obviously a much more worldwide application, not just in Israel and not just with the temple. Um, they really use a verse like Revelation 119 as a guide to understanding this book. Jesus will tell John in this book, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that take place after this. And they see these, these three things as the whole of the book of Revelation. The stuff that John has seen is Revelation 1. He sees this vision of Jesus. The things that are now, Revelation 2 and 3, these are the letters to the churches, and this is still the area of the church. This is still that present dispensation. And then the things that will take place is Revelation 4 and everything after that. The things that will take place after this, it's the future, the prophecies, and none of this has really happened yet. And this would be the next era, the next dispensation. And so for a premillennialist, they would look at all the things found in Revelation and look for a direct counterpart. The 144,000 people that we read about in Revelation is, is a collection of Jewish people who have turned their hearts to Christ and are following him. The beast isn't fulfilled in Nero or anyone from the past. That's what a postmillennialist would say, that the beast was Nero, that he was the leader of Rome who came to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And so the Antichrist is Nero. Um, but a, a, a premillennialist would say, no one who has lived yet is, the, as far as we know, the Antichrist. Um, it's not anyone from the past, but the, the Antichrist is the leader of the world at the time of the tribulation. Babylon, that it talks about in Revelation, is a Roman-like empire, like a worldwide empire or a final empire, that there will be an empire later on. We just don't know what it is yet. But because of the distinction that a premillennialist makes between the church and Israel, it obviously requires a literal nation of Israel to exist. Because the book of Revelation talks about stuff specifically happening to and in Israel. And so you have to have an actual Israel, you have to have an actual Jerusalem, and you have to have an actual temple. And this is why it was such a big deal in 1948 when Israel was reestablished. Because from 80, or 70 AD to 1948, we didn't have those things. We also didn't have Carol. But then in, in, in 1948, all of that changed. Um, but we have seen the establishment of Israel, and there are people trying to get the temple rebuilt. And so a premillennialist can look at these things and start to see some dots connecting. Now, even though many of us, if not most of us, would identify as premillennialists, that doesn't mean there aren't some challenges to holding this view. There aren't some questions that maybe aren't quite answered the way that they would need to be, or potentially challenges to it. Um, the first challenge that premillennialism or premillennialism premillennialism has is that Revelation is filled with references to all of this happening soon. I don't think I put these um, in here. Nope. 
So, but Revelation chapter one, verse one. So the very first verse of the book of Revelation says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Revelation chapter one, verse three. So just two verses later, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written because the time is near. And there's lots of references in the book of Revelation to these things happening soon. And if you hold a premillennialist view, it's been 2000 years and we're still waiting. We're getting into a very, 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 very loose definition of the word soon. Now, the, the response to this is that these statements were less a, a description of time and more about setting a mindset. That these things could happen at any time. And once it does happen, it's going to happen very quickly. It's meant to teach us an attitude that God wants us to be ready to come at any moment, which kind of makes sense, can kind of track with that. But it isn't the strongest way to deal with these verses. When, when we just take the hard parts or the parts that challenge our, the, our theology or understanding and, and just simply say, well doesn't really mean that when when jesus said soon now with the benefit of hindsight we know he didn't really mean soon he just meant it could be soon we we open the door to all kinds of wrong ways of understanding scripture when we just simply take the hard parts and go yeah didn't really mean it another major issue and probably the strongest issue with premillennialism is that after chapter four begins and the letters to the church end in Revelation, probably the biggest challenge that a premillennialist would view or, and something that a postmillennialist would say, this is probably one of the largest reasons why they wouldn't subscribe to it, is that from Revelation chapter four through till the end of the book, the church is no longer mentioned. That throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, you have the story, you have the story of the New Testament, which is the birth of the church. But then in the story, in the end, it abandons the church and goes back to Israel. God is working in Israel from the time of Abraham through to the time of Jesus. Then God moves beyond Israel to the whole world through his church. But then suddenly and seemingly without reason that the story that's being told in scripture that story kind of comes off the rails. God's work in, in, in the nation of Israel seemingly gets started up again and becomes the entire focus of the biblical narrative again and the entire focus of, of God's plan and intention. Even though through so much of the New Testament, it's the story of God moving on from Israel and, and inviting the whole world into this and how the disciples and the followers of Jesus are wrestling with the idea that it's not just about Israel anymore. But then at the end, all of a sudden it shifts back and the focus is on Israel again. And the church disappears. The prophecies are no longer about the church at all. It's all focused on Israel. And a premillennialist really doesn't have a way of understanding or explaining why this happens. Other than it just sort of seems to. And the last issue that I want to highlight um, Actually, we, we, can, we don't need to talk about that, but it, it, it's just the idea that well, because we don't know, 
um, it leads to all kinds of speculation and trying to decode and figure out these passages. And we've talked about some of the challenges that we face as trying to make the end times because we have all these clues trying to trying to decode them. But this does lead us into our next view of eschatology and like a subshoot of what we just talked about, but this is called progressive dispensational premillennialism. So what does that mean? Now, sometimes inside of church circles, a word like progressive can carry a lot of baggage. Um, it's not that kind of progressive. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, when we talk about progressive, we're actually talking about progressing. We're talking about the literal meaning of the word progressive, um, or what the word actually means. To bring this view down to its brass tacks, you would use a phrase that can be common in Christian circles um, that you may have heard before, the already, not yet. Um, what does it mean as we, what does that mean? In general, what it refers to is that there's principles and teachings about things that are both happening already, and yet there's still a greater future reality for those things. Um, as an example in scripture, it will, scripture will tell us that we come into a relationship or when we come into our relationship with Jesus, we become a child of God. But we don't really see the full picture of everything that it means for us to be a child of God until we get to spend eternity with God. Then we'll have a more full picture that you and I, we are children of God, but there's also a bigger understanding of children of God. It's already true but it's not yet fully true. Um, another example that I think is, is a really good, a really, a really helpful one to understand um, is uh, we're, we are made when, when we accept Jesus, um, we're made perfect, sinless and righteous in the blood of Christ. But yet at the same time, we're being still being sanctified. That we are made perfect and sinless, and we're, we're, we, Scripture will say we're hid in the righteousness of Jesus. We are righteous, we are holy, all of those things, but we still are undergoing the process of sanctification that won't be complete until we're in his presence. And so we're already made holy, but we're going to really understand what it means to be holy. It's already true, but it's not yet true as well. And so we can take this idea of already not yet, and it's, it's not a weird concept. It's not a controversial concept. It's a wholly biblical concept. And what this does is it places this concept in, on the fulfillment of prophecy, that there can be a fulfillment both now and a greater fulfillment later on. Or another way to say it would be a partial and a total fulfillment. Um, you can see many things like this in the prophecies of the Old Testament and then see how they were fulfilled by Israel but then later on also by Jesus. We've talked about this a few times. As Matthew says that Hosea was talking about Jesus, Hosea or Matthew will unequivocally say that when Hosea said, out of Egypt, I called my son, that he was talking about Jesus. But if you read Hosea chapter 11, that's not really what Hosea was talking about. That it was true for what Hosea said it was true for, but it was also true for what Matthew said it was true for, that there was a partial fulfillment in the nation of Israel, but there was a full fulfillment in the person of Jesus. But when we understand this idea of already not yet, we see the original understanding of this fulfillment was a picture of the greater fulfillment to come. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, I won't read it for time, 
but it's, it's a prophecy about Solomon. Unequivocally. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. It's clearly about Solomon, but it's even more clearly about Jesus. And many people will think that the prophecies found in the Bible at the end times may have this kind of progressive thing, this, this already not yet thing going on as well. So if we go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, where, where, that we read before, or already not yet, right? Therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that will take place after this, and how a dispensational premillennialist would use this as the three portions of the book to understand what was, what is, and is to come, a pro progressive dispensational premillennialist would break it down like this, right? Therefore, what you've seen, that's the entirety of the book of Revelation, everything that has been shown to John, and then separate that whole book into two types of things, the already and the not yet. The what is now, the already, and what will take place later, the not yet. This kind of view takes sort of the best parts of the understanding of post-millennial view and the pre-millennial view and just kind of combines them. They would say that the reason why it looks like so many events were, were or so many prophecies in the Bible were fulfilled in AD 70 at the destruction of the temple or whatever other event that may seem to be some kind of fulfillment of prophecy is because in a way they were. Kind of. Because 70, 80 or whatever, it's a partial fulfillment of prophecy but the reason why it doesn't seem like we can connect all the dots is because it wasn't the ultimate total fulfillment because the ultimate fulfillment has yet to come and will be more like what a premillennial view suggests this doesn't seem to wreck or this view does seem to reconcile many of the struggles of the complete premillennial view that that we just talked about because the things did happen soon that the things that that the book of revelation describes the partial fulfillments they did start right away just not the full thing it's it's not as likely to get caught up in the idea of speculation and trying to decode because it's not as concerned with the specific it and more like it's or it's a partial it but what it does have as a potential drawback is that everything is something and everything is nothing it makes everything kind of gray because you don't know if anything is that or just a partial that. And there's also still sort of the problem of the church. It reconciles a little bit to say, well, it's going to be fulfilled in Israel, but, but that's the, you know, it, 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 but it doesn't really give you a clear, you were never really able to clearly understand this is the fulfillment of prophecy, except through much reflection later on. Now, there's two more views that we're going to move through pretty quickly as we've really covered probably the three main views that you're probably a post-millennialist, a pre-millennialist, or, or a progressive pre-millennialist. But the next view is called the amillennial view. The amillennial view is a totally different view from all the other ones. Um, it's not built off of either. They are not pre nor are they post they are probably the hardest to identify because within this view the way they walk it out is actually very diverse typically they would say the millennium reign of jesus is happening right now so in that sense it's similar to a post-millennial view but the way that they understand it is totally different um the the, the way uh, the 
the millennium reign of Christ isn't an earthly reign at all, like we would understand it. The reign of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ has very little to do with the world itself, but instead looks more like just the gospel being sent out into the world. And the reigning of Jesus in the millennium is a heavenly reign. Jesus is reigning in heaven. He is in heaven reigning, and the millennium has its real impact in heaven. Um, on earth, it's just the gospel going out into the world, and it's just a reigning in a spiritual sense. That Jesus's thousand-year reign has nothing really to have an effect on earth. It has far more of an effect in heaven and on earth. It just looks like the gospel going out. Now, another thing they would have in common with a post-millennial view, although again, they look at it very differently, but they would say that the thousand year reign isn't a literal thousand years, but unlike the post-millennial view that would just say it's a stand in for a big number, the all millennial view would say that the millennium is actually a measurable time. It's just measured in gospel outreach, not time. There's a variance in their understanding of the tribulation. Some think that it's still coming. Other think that it, it's just the period that we're in right now. It's not a literal seven years. That it's just, the, while Jesus is reigning his thousand years in heaven, we've got a seven-year tribulation that's taking place here. Both numbers are figurative. They're not literal. They believe that the second coming of Christ is still yet to come and still very real. It's just not connected to time as it is connected to gospel outreach it, it still holds all of the same tenets of of what we would call a christian view um and their their view of revelation i don't think i put this one up here. no um their view of revelation specifically is what's known as an idealist because you may hear me describe all of that and you say well what is revelation how, how do they understand anything about revelation if that's what they think and so what they, what they would do is, is they're what's called an idealist. They look at revelation in a completely different way than anyone else does. They do not view revelation as prophecy in a traditional sense. Um, it's not about predicting the future. It's not about telling you what will happen. The book of revelation is more like a series of parables to talk about the kind of things that will happen while we're waiting for the second coming that is real. It teaches principles of trouble and rebellion against God and eventual victory for God and believers everywhere. But none of the predictions are specific. It does predict everything generically, but there's no historical direct parallel to this passage being that event that they would say that it's not, we need to look for these individual things, but more we would need to learn to understand the lessons being taught in each of these stories there was just like there was no specific good samaritan in the story that jesus told he wasn't telling the story of a literal person he was telling the story of a figurative person that we can learn lessons from they would say the book of revelation is just one long series of parables it's giving us ideas of types of things that could happen but not predictions of what will happen it's not about looking for events so much but much more in looking for the meanings behind what the picture in revelation is giving us um, from the idealist perspective the book of revelation is simply meant to encourage you to encourage you to preserve in your faith that despite all of these things god will win and you will be rewarded that that's ultimately the story of all of these parables is that in the end, God wins. And so we don't look for actual fulfillment because it doesn't exist. 
Just like if the people of Jesus' time went out to go find the good Samaritan to reward him for his goodness, they wouldn't find him. Criticisms of this view is that it makes everything in the Bible about end times very vague and very general, which seems to fly in the, in the face of the amount of intense details given in the Bible about these things. If it's just principles, then why does the Bible go to all the trouble of all the minute details? It would be as if Jesus told us the story of the Good Samaritan by noting the color of the Good Samaritan's eyes and what he had for breakfast on that day and the name of a second cousin twice removed of the innkeeper in the story of the Good Samaritan, that there'd be no reason to go into all of the detail that it does if it's just a generic parable. It seems to run very counter to what seems to be happening in these passages if they're meant to be just taken figuratively. And the last, the last of the six views that we're going to talk about tonight is what's known as a historicist view. This is a view that used to be very popular. I said all three, all six of these views you can find good, well, five of the six views you can find good Bible-believing um, Christians who believe in them, other than uh, the, the full or hyper-preterist. Um, this one you'll have a harder time because this is a view that's essentially dwindling out. Um, but up until about 500 years ago, this was the standard view that all Christians everywhere typically held about the understanding of revelation. This is the view throughout church history that was the most, the most popular. Um, but most people now don't hold these views, although some groups like Seventh-day Adventists and some other groups that would consider themselves a part of our faith, even if we wouldn't, like a Jehovah's Witness, they still try and operate like this. And what they do is they would try, what a historicist view would be, or a historicist understanding would be to take the book of Revelation and place it in, in over the time from Jesus until their time in an effort to try and make events or make sense of the events of history based on now being the end. And all the events in history that could be seen as fulfillment to these events were to be considered in there. They would ignore timelines and details that, that they couldn't make work and just focus on how you could make it all work. The problem was that the end of history always coincided with whatever right now was. And so many of prominent people from that time, and we, we talked about this briefly in one of our previous sessions, but Martin Luther um, the reformer, 96 Thesis, the, the Protestant Revolution, um, he held to this view. And if you were to read his commentary, Martin Luther's commentary in the book of Galatians, you would see that in no uncertain terms that he declares the Pope of his day was the Antichrist. Because he believed in a historicist that right now must be it. And so if now is it, we need to back up from here and figure all of this out. Well, who is the Antichrist? It's the Pope. But essentially, the difficulty with this was starting with the conclusion that for the Reformers, the Catholic Church was the Antichrist. Or for the Catholics at the time of the Reformers, the Reformers were the Antichrist. And then working backwards to figure out how you were right. The problem, of course, with this view is that every time you're wrong and a hundred years or so pass by, suddenly you have to realign everything because time and history have changed the narratives of what was going on in the world. 
And so that's kind of the six most common views, the six most regular views of end times. Um, I do want to touch briefly on the idea of rapture and the timing of the rapture. We need to be done soon, but we, I don't have a lot of notes on this. Um, and there's really three main views, but there's five different views and talked about this before. But really the reason why to touch on this later is because if you're a post-millennialist, you don't have a view on when the rapture is going to be. Because the tribulation's already happened. The only thing left is a post-tribulation post post rapture because the tribulation's already happened. If you're an all-millennialist, you don't have a view on this because it's already happened. If you're a hyper-preterist, you don't have a view on this because it's already happened. If you're a historicist, you don't have a view on this because it's already happened. The only view that leaves room for interpretation is if you're a pre-millennialist because none of this has happened yet. And so there's really three main views, but five if you want to get into the wider Christian kingdom. Um, and all three, there may be, th or the three that you may be aware of would be a pre-tribulation pre rapture, a post-tribulation rapture, or a mid-tribulation rapture. And all three connect to that seven-year tribulation period and when the rapture might occur around that. The first, pre-tribulation meaning before the very or before the beginning of the tribulation the rapture will take place people who look to this understanding um, look to a couple of main passages to inform their understanding a uh, revelation chapter 3 verse 10 makes us a promise that directly says that the church will be kept from the hour of trial is because you have kept my word about or a word about patience endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. That there's a promise being made that be, Jesus, when we read in, in Mark chapter 13, will say those who endure until the end. And here it's God making a promise saying, because you endured until the end, I will keep you from the trials that are coming, the trials to the whole earth. And we read that in the context of Revelation. It's got to be the tribulation. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 makes the same kind of promise. And to wait for his son from heaven, from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What is the wrath to come? Well, got to mean the tribulation first thessalonians chapter 5 verse 9 teaches us the same truth for god has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our lord jesus christ now there's lots of other ideas and understandings and interpretations that support this idea that that we cannot go and dig further into tonight we could do a whole session just on this but those are the main scriptural references that you would use to support a pre-tribulation view other than to say well if this event the way that it sounds like here we'd have there would have already had to have be been a tribulation and there's reasons for understanding things like people will say if, if, if it's a post-tribulation rapture then who's left after the rapture to occupy the kingdom that if god brings everyone up with him then who's left after that but we can't really get into all all of that tonight but those are the main passages where where scripture explicitly will say god is going to keep us from the trials from the wrath that is to come um next would be a mid-tribulation and this one admittedly is probably the one that you have to do the most 
not gymnastics, but the most sort of, I need to take part of a verse from here and part of a verse from there and part of a verse from here, part of a verse from there. And if I add it all up, then I get a mid-tribulation rapture. But essentially a mid-tribulation rapture would take all of those same verses that we just read for, for the pre-trib and just say, it's just not going to happen till the middle. Um, that, that it's going to wait until things get really bad. Um, but if they, were to pull, if they were to say, here is scripturally a mid-tribulation view on the, the, the rapture, they would point to the blowing of the seventh, the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 7, where it says, um, but in the, in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servant, the prophet. So there's this blowing of this, this seventh trumpet, and then it will tell us that the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And they would take this idea of this trumpet that's being blown, and they would connect it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, which will tell us, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That they will, they will talk about, or 1 Corinthians chapter 15 will talk about when the last trumpet blows. And so they will go to the seventh of the seventh trumpets in Revelation chapter 10 and say, there's the connection. When the last trumpet, the trumpet from Revelation 10 is the same trumpet in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so when that trumpet is blown, the mystery of God that we talked about, that the prophets foretold, that Paul spoke about, the mystery of God is the rapture. Um, and they'll look at things like the removal of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 as a symbolic description of the rapture. And what they will say is the earlier judgments in the rapture. So, so all of the judgments leading up to the seventh trumpet, including the, the seal judgments and the six trumpet judgments prior, they're not seen as God's wrath, but the wrath of men. And then this view would say that at the seventh trumpet is when the wrath switches from the wrath of man to the wrath of God. And that's why God gets everyone out of there. Uh, this view teaches that the believer must endure the wrath of man, but is exempt from the wrath of God. And so they would point to all of those verses that we read that the church will be kept from the hour of trial, that Jesus will deliver us from wrath. And they will say, but it's not all of the wrath that the first six or the first seven seals and the first six trumpets, that's the wrath of man. The last set or the last trumpet and the other judgments to come, that's the wrath of God. And that's when we get out of there. And the post tribulation view, we're in it for the long haul that Jesus is not coming back until the end of the tribulation. And they'll actually point to passages like we talked about last time. Mark 13, when Jesus talks about his second coming, it says that and he, uh, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. This is the second coming of Jesus. And he will then send out the angels and gather his elect, all of the believers from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. But as Jesus speaks about this, he certainly seems to be connecting these two events as one. Same thing takes place in 2 Thessalonians, another passage that we looked at a while ago where it talks about the man of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 also seems to connect these two things where he will say, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, that Paul in 2 Thessalonians seems to connect these two events, the coming of our Lord Jesus 
and are being gathered to him, that these two things seem to be happening at the same time. And this is also true of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is the passage where we actually get the word rapture from. This is why we call it the rapture is from this passage where it will say, in, starting in verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. So the God is, Jesus is coming back. That's what's taking place here. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, verse 17. And after that, we who are still left alive are left and are, sorry, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. That phrase there, caught up, the Greek for that is uh, rapturo, and that's where we get rapture from. That's why we call it the raptures, specifically from this passage. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. So we will always be with the Lord. Again, these two events, Jesus comes back in verse 16, and it's followed in verse 17 by Jesus get, bringing all of those who are alive, being caught up, and that's where the word rapture comes from. And again, like pre-tribulation, there's some other ideas and interpretations that go into this making sense, like if the, or if the tribulation is supposed to be a trial and this extreme persecution on the church, but if the church has already been raptured, who's being persecuted? How are we persecuting a church that isn't there anymore? There's also what's called pre-wrath tribulationists. So this is where we get into the fourth kind, one that you may or may not be as familiar with. But functionally, this is very, 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 very late mid-tribulation. Um, this is the idea that the rapture of God will occur at the very end of the tribulation before the final outpouring of God's wrath with the bowl judgments, Revelation chapter 16, prior to the return of Christ. So it's right at the very last moment before the final judgments of God are poured out that we are raptured up. And then there are those who just don't believe that there's going to be a rapture at all. That the idea of a rapture is more of a construct that we've created more than anything that's really defensible defensible from scripture that we because we have this idea that there's a rapture we go back and try and find scriptures to support this idea but really there is no rapture they see the passages about us being caught up or taken up with god they don't see them as literal but more in a figurative sense pointing to customs of biblical times where you would go out to meet a coming king or a ruler as a sign of respect or welcome that you would go out to meet them because you, you had a sign of respect, not necessarily because you were going to join them and then you would accompany them back. But it's, it's not a leaving here in a sense. We don't go anywhere. What I want to close our time with tonight that I want to highlight for you is, is that these kinds of discussions um, have been going on for a very long time. And the, most, or, and the most common and the most widely accepted views have ebbed and flowed over time. Um, in my research, I found this passage from an early church father around 400 AD. His name was Eusebius. And he wrote about church history. That, that's who he was. And he makes fun of essentially the idea of a premillennial view. Specifically, another church father named Papias when he said that the only reason that Papias or anyone would believe in a literal thousand-year reign is because they were stupid. 
All that to say is that we can create all kinds of problems when we can claim to have an infallible understanding of something like this, that there really isn't necessarily a clear answer. And no matter how strongly we may hold to our own view on a subject like this, to recognize that there's been discussion ever since the church got their hands on the book of Revelation and said, wait, what? I swear that love will find you in your pain. I feel Thanks again for being a part of this message from Hillside Church. We pray that God was able to speak to you through what was shared. We're so grateful to be able to share God's word with our church community and family. And that includes you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hillside Airdrie. You can contact us through email at info at hillsideairdrie.ca. Or you can go to hillsideairdrie.ca and click on contact us from the main menu. Or you can find our pastoral team contact by clicking on our pastors from the Our Church drop-down menu. Our vision for everyone that shares in Hillside Church is that they would know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power in their lives. And we pray this message ministered to you. At Hillside Church, we're a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. As family we go. I feel it in me like the beating of life.